Welcome back to Behind Our Door. We are so glad you're here again. Um, every time we do this, I feel like we get better and better. But please feel free to let us know how we're doing at any time. Hit us up on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter. We're on all of those. We'd love, love, love to hear from you. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Julie. Good to see you. You also. That's true. I like that you say that. I mean, it's good. We. I feel like feedback is the best. It is. Speaking of feedback, I was thinking about you the other day. I know you do a lot of crisis calls. What would you say one of the most common crisis call you take? Housing. Hands down, it's people that have adult children or siblings that they care for that are especially COVID-wise, that are trying to either stay in their residential housing or look for placement in residential housing. Um, before the pandemic hit, it was a huge challenge. Now in the past two years, even more so just because of restrictions. and um, The COVID restrictions? Are the COVID restrictions okay. and also... Um, also population, you know, numbers and all of how many people would live in these places, you know, not necessarily all of them, but at times. But, um, but I have had people that really struggle with, um, you know, these, these folks have behavioral problems and um, are trying to live on their own. But behavioral problems that stem from their mental yeah, health right, issues. Yeah, right, from their mental just, illness. Yeah. And um, they you know, it's, it's, they're trying to live on their own and things go awry and they, you know, step out of line and then they run the risk of being kicked out. And then the options are really slim. So it's, it's um, tough situation, it's a very for... tough, tough, uh, question and challenge. But I know that in the upcoming months, we will have some guests on, uh, that will be directly talking about this. And I can't wait because I feel like the audience is waiting for that. Yeah, we have so many topics that we are going to cover as, as we move on through this journey. Um, yeah. And hopefully that will be one of them. I wish I had a great answer that I could give people right now. Um, but unfortunately, I don't. I mean, you have to check with your local agencies and probably start with NAMI. Mm -hmm. I would start there. There is, um, you know, there's a kind of thing where you have to start at the, the root of each individual and what they're you know, where they live, what their possibilities are in their area, and then just make a zillion calls. And one thing leads to another and hopefully a good answer at the end of the day. Yeah. Or even their local city or town, mm -hmm. I would start there too. That might be a good... Yeah. You always hope that there's... I mean, I'd remain hopeful with all these callers, just thinking there's something for everybody. It takes a while. The search is tough. Um, it's never like, oh, here's a place. Right. Call them and you're in. I don't think I've ever had anything that easy, but I do feel like there is something for everybody. You just have to have patience and a place to stay in the meantime, right. another part of the problem. Um, so I do know we, we're talking to um, potential guests and have some lineup, some lined up that will address some of these issues. So um, it will be helpful. I'm looking forward to that. I am as well. So with each of these podcasts, we embrace our followers People wait for the every other Wednesday for the shows to drop, and we are also, with all of this, building our podcast library for the listening audience of Behind Our Door. For people to look at these episodes, choose their interest or need, and learn. 
today for the individuals that need information to support or advocate for themselves or their loved ones regarding something along the lines of their mental health rights, we have a leading expert as our guest to enlighten and empower that person, attorney Matt Cohn. He is the founder of Matt Cohn and Associates in Chicago and has extensive experience in mental health and human services law. He has litigated numerous special education cases and has represented thousands of children and adults with disabilities and their families. We cannot thank you enough for your time giving us this time today. Welcome, Matt Cohn. Happy Welcome. To be here. Thank you so thank much you. for being here. To get started, I, I need to um, dumb it down for people like myself who started once upon a time when my child was young. Um, a lot of people don't even know what special education means when they have a child with mental health. Like, where do you start? How do you know when you need it? What's an IEP? What's a 504? I know that's a layered question, but go ahead. The educational system has an obligation to address the needs of children with disabilities. And there are two major laws that do that. One is called the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and that's the law that, if you become eligible, gives you the right to an IEP. And the other is a law called Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, and that's a law that's similar to Title VII and Title IX, and it's an anti-discrimination law. But within the context of the public schools, if a child has been identified as eligible for a 504 plan, uh, they can get services, though there are differences in what they can get under a 504 plan compared to an IEP. And we can't do it on radio, but if you were to see this on a TV screen and mm -hmm. imagined a circle of kids who are in the center, who are the kids who qualify for an IEP, the criteria to qualify for an IEP are more stringent. And so there are millions of kids who qualify, but it's a smaller number of kids, and it includes kids with emotional and behavioral disorders. And then if you drew a bigger circle around the small circle, that would be a much larger group of kids who can qualify for a 504 plan. And the, many people get confused about what you get, and we could talk about what you get, but the, uh, there are differences in terms of how you qualify. So in order to qualify for an IEP, you have to fit one of the categories of special ed that they have, and it includes uh, the category of emotional disturbance, which includes kids with emotional and behavioral disorders, and it includes the category of other health impairment, which covers, among other things, kids who have ADHD, uh, which is a, a source of frequent emotional right. and behavioral difficulty. By contrast, to qualify for a 504, there are no categories. As long as some clinical person verifies that you have a disorder that substantially limits a major life activity, and it doesn't necessarily even have to be at school, you can qualify for a 504 plan. The other big difference is that in order to qualify for an IEP, it's a little bit circular, but to qualify for an IEP to provide special ed, you have to need special ed, which means that there has to be some part of what the school is going to do for you that includes service from a special ed teacher. By contrast, and instructional service. By contrast, to qualify for a 504, you could get a 504 if you need special ed teacher help, but you could get a 504 if all you need is extra time on a test, or if all you need is to go to the nurse's office to take your 
uh, psychotropic medication during the day, or if all you need is some help with executive functioning because you have trouble being organized. So in general, as the two circles illustrate, right. much easier to get a 504 plan. And isn't the 504 covering a larger age group, like you could get a 504 college level, and an IEP is a younger well, set? Well, that's a very good point. Uh, 504 plan isn't defined by age, actually. It's defined by any organization that receives federal funding. So public schools receive federal money. Colleges and universities receive federal money. There are lots of private businesses that receive federal money that are covered by 504. An IEP only applies to public elementary and high school education. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. Yeah, it really is. I, I remember being surprised uh, when one of my kids uh, got accepted to university out east, and I went to the orientation. You know, all the parents in the area go, all these kids are going, and they were talking about the school and what they offered, and they were talking about a 504 plan, and I had um, was surprised that universities offered that. I had yeah. thought it was, you know, just through high school, and um, it's just a... It makes sense. It was just a nice a nice realization. It makes sense. Makes sense, but many people don't understand it. And I bet people don't even know to ask. Some people don't know to ask, but frankly, in relation to mental health, there's another problem, which is that many people are embarrassed to ask. Stigma. <laughs> Stigma is a huge right. issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, in our practice, uh, our primary practice is focused on kids 3 to 22, but we do a lot of higher ed work, both at the college and university level. And the worst cases are the kids who didn't think to ask or didn't want to ask, and then they're in trouble and they're being booted. Right. Oh, right. And we can help kids much more easily if we help them at the front end, even if the school is saying, well, you're asking for something we're not sure is reasonable. But if they wait until they're in trouble and they're on academic probation or they've you know, missed the criteria to stay in school and they're being dismissed, we do succeed in getting many of those kids back, but it's much harder. And, and it's interesting because we're talking about kids with mental health issues. Um, there are many kids, and this also goes to the stigma and the reluctance to self-disclose, many kids who are either candidates for or in college and they've got severe anxiety problems. Yes. Uh, so as an example, we had a case a couple of pre-pandemic, but, but only recently pre-pandemic with one of the uh, universities in central Illinois. The student was so anxiety-ridden, he couldn't get out of bed. Oh, gosh. Ever. <laughs> he stayed. He had an off-campus apartment, and he was not going to any classes. And the uh, university involved actually did a pretty good job up to a point they were willing to, and this again pre-pandemic to let him do remotely a lot of his coursework and he got all the way through without it he was stuck in his apartment a poor kid you know yeah. ridden by anxiety all the way through to his senior year and there was one class that was a Japanese language class and they required an in-person component because there was dialogue as right. a critical part of the uh, class requirement. And so we had to get involved to negotiate uh, an alternative way for him to meet that credit requirement that would allow him to graduate. But these are things that, uh, regardless of whether they're externally perceived as severe or more mild, 
for the individual involved, they're debilitating. Right. And mm -hmm. they can be crippling. And and crippling and so hard to prove. I mean, I can't, I can only imagine how long that took. Took to, a long time. To get. Sure. And in the meantime, the child's life is, uh, you know, on pause. Mm -hmm. Yes. And they're struggling. And uh, uncertainty of their status uh, generates more anxiety and more deterioration. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a real vicious circle. Yeah, especially at that, that young age because there's a lot of pressure just being an adult. Now you're an adult and you're away from your parents for the mm -hmm. first time, and now you're struggling even more. It, it can be very crippling. Yeah, and, and also to mention that that happens to be the age that some of these manifest. You know, some of these mental illnesses like bipolar disorder, when someone goes away to school and they're in their 20s, all of a sudden there's a change from depression to a more debilitating diagnosis. And... Um, and so in high school, they, they might have just thought this was like a moody kid, and all of a sudden, the, you know, they go away, and it hits it. This is really a serious issue going on, and then you have to go in for the right the yeah. rights if they're willing. Yeah. I, I don't want to get ahead of you, but this is a kind of a natural moment for me to say. Everything you said is absolutely right. But at the moment, we have a particular crisis, and the particular crisis is from kids across the board who were kept at home because of the pandemic. Yeah. And uh, many of them deteriorated. Many of them were unable to participate in school even when school was being offered. And for some of those kids, what was being offered was little or none. Uh, they couldn't get much social work service. They couldn't get much interaction with peers. Yes. Uh, they had to pay attention mm -hmm. six hours a day to a from their, bedroom, screen, from their bedroom. Uh, from their bedroom. Their parents might or might not have been around to help mm -hmm. to supervise them. And so the, the result that uh, actually the American Psychiatric Association and the American Association of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry have described it as a, a mental health emergency for kids. And that's borne out in my own practice. We have more kids, more families, not the kids themselves, but families right. calling with the kids in crisis, more violence more Jeez. Uh, at, at the levels of, of homicidality, uh, severe aggression. I have, I have one client whose kid is 16, and the, the dad, it was actually just in the, on NPR two days ago, the father has been uh, put in the hospital with traumatic brain injuries three times caused by the son. Oh, gosh. Uh, because the son needs to be in a facility right. and there's nowhere to go. And and uh, I also have many more very young kids who are having major crises, some of them even becoming very violent and dangerous. And, and even, and you both probably know some of the diagnostic stuff better than I do, but they're being given a diagnosis of you know, psychotic behavior at yes. ages 6 or 8 or 10. And that's horrifying. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, I, just to complete the point, Many of these treatment programs, whether they're local or residential, are losing staff because of the pandemic, and mm -hmm. so they don't have the capacity to provide services. So there's then more need and less yeah, availability horrible, at the vicious, same time. Vicious, yeah. It's like a catch-22. Mm -hmm. It's a perfect storm, yeah. absolute yeah. perfect storm. I, I feel that personally I was doing a little bit of IEP advocacy, and I mean very minimal because obviously my education level doesn't meet up to that, but just having my own son that went through enough struggles um, with school system and having to fight him, I have a little bit of knowledge, yeah. but my phone 
during COVID was ringing off mm -hmm. the hook. Believe it. Yeah, um, same, and of course, same I, here. I mean, it's a big topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But before we d delve into yeah. way too much of that, I just want to backtrack a little sure. <laughs> to, to young kids. Like, we are obviously in COVID. So if you are seeing issues with your child, when is a good time to act? What do you do? Do you pick up the phone? Do you call the school and say, hey, um, little Johnny needs an IEP. I need to get an IEP for him. Or I need a 504. Or what does that look like? Well, the first thing that I would say is yes, reach out, and not only reach out, but then document that you've reached out because it's very important to establish that you're making a record. Yes, of thank concern. God for email. Mm -hmm. Makes it a lot. Absolutely. You know, parents emailing the guidance counselors. Sure, yes. keep it. Don't uh, don't erase it or throw it away. Uh, and then I would say at the outset, the the, the nuance. It's, it's a big nuance, but mm -hmm. the nuance of whether it's a 504 plan or an IEP, in my mind, is secondary. The, the initial thing is, my kid's suffering and I need an evaluation. Good point. That's yeah. A... And then you can sort out, should it be a 504 plan or an IEP? But, but in fact, and unfortunately, some public schools don't follow this trajectory, but in theory, if a kid is perceived that they may have a disability... The school district has to either agree that an evaluation is needed and then they have to meet with the parents to decide what to do and the parents have to consent to the evaluation or they have to tell the parents they don't think the kid has a problem and put that in writing and tell the parents what their rights are to challenge that and that often doesn't happen. So in terms of what do you do, at the very first step if the school isn't responding, you're supposed to get a formal notice of refusal and you have the right to legally challenge that. If they agree to do the evaluation, then they have 60 school days in which to complete whatever testing they've decided they need to do. And then if at the end of that 60 days they decide they don't need an IEP, and here's where schools also drop the ball sometimes, they should immediately default to looking at should the kid get a 504 plan. Because again, as I said earlier, much easier to get a 504 right. plan. It's so, the, the accommodations are different. The accommodations that, yeah. are different, but mm -hmm. the eligibility is easier. So just because you didn't qualify for an IEP doesn't mean you can't qualify for a 504 plan. And it's worth saying, particularly for kids with mental health issues, you can get social work services through a 504 plan as well as an IEP, but you can get it through a 504 plan. You can get counseling for the parent through a 504 plan as really? well as through Really? Oh, an I IEP. didn't know that. Wow. Absolutely. Counseling for the parent? That's fraught in some ways. How you know, have to be a little careful about that. Because, yeah, but still, yeah. I feel like that's something, I mean, people just don't know all these. Because it is right. a family unit. It's I a mean, family unit. and you, you, We always forget. The kid wanna, goes home to the parents, so. Kids go home to it's the parents, gotta and, and it's got to work. Uh, you can, uh, you know, there are kids with various mental health problems and certainly either acting out behavior or ADHD who may warrant something called a behavior intervention plan. You can one of those under a 504 plan also, uh, you may be able to get uh, kids hyperactive. They have the right to take a break in the hallway if they need it. It doesn't seem like a big deal, and it certainly shouldn't be a big deal. Mm -hmm. But if you're forcing a kid to sit, you know, locking sit. them to their yeah. seat mm -hmm. when they can't really do it, what happens? And these things, Behavior. these things make a difference. I mean, they're Absolutely. written out because that, you know, on that for that particular kid, sure. it will help. Absolutely. Yeah. And... 
kids with mental health needs typically, regardless of the nature of the mental health issue, require more attention. They require people checking in on them more. They require uh, verification that they're okay, that they're, they're engaged in the lesson, and, and that they're uh, aware of what's going to be do the next day and all of those things. It could be because of anxiety, it could be attention, it could be uh, depression, there are lots of different things that could interfere with their ability to be engaged in what's happening in the class. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes just the greater degree of kind of attention and effort from the staff. Good teachers often do that automatically, Yes. but not everybody does. Yes. And, so you, you and I've dealt with both ends it. of the spectrum, so. And I can clearly tell you when the teachers are engaged and and they prompt the students and give them the heads up of right. what's coming next, it's, it makes for a more successful day the next day. Absolutely. The sad reality is, and this is true of lots of laws, many people conform to the speed limit. <laughs> but some people don't. And if you don't have a speed limit or if you have a higher speed limit, people will abuse that even more. And unfortunately, the same thing is true in public education. Yeah. <laughs> no surprise. There are, you there are expectations. It, I <laughs> but I, I think one of the difficulties for parents, and I think this is very germane to your listeners, is we all start out believing we can trust the schools. And in fact, there is a leap of faith in which we pack our kids up in the morning, we put them in their coats, we give them their lunchbox, and we send them off, and we all kind of hold our breath and hope mm -hmm. that it's all going to be okay. There are lots of great teachers out there. There are plenty of adequate teachers out there. Nonetheless, it's a leap of faith, and you can't always trust that those good people are there. And if your child has differences, then the stakes go up, and the mm -hmm. uncertainty about whether their needs are going to be met is, is more complicated and less certain. And the uh, painful reality is that teachers are expected to do a lot. They have large class sizes. They're given limited training and limited resources. And the more complicated and demanding the kid, more likely it's going to be that the teacher's not going to have the time and attention and interest. In yeah, and that. like you said at the beginning of this conversation, in this day and age with the shortage of teachers right. and the... Um, you know, lack of what's going on in the schools yeah. day to day, it's really rough. I it's feel really like rough. these kids get the short end of the stick. And, yeah. and the parents, I still think so many parents don't realize that this help is out there way at the beginning. Um, right. Unless they have a good counseling department that when they call and say, I'm really worried about so-and-so, uh, you know, this is having trouble in class and all of this. It's great if they tell them about all of this, but they have to find it sometimes. Absolutely. And one thing that uh, is worth saying, I, I'm, as kids display more intense need, the tendency is to begin to move them from the regular classroom into self-contained classrooms. And the tendency with kids who have emotional behavior problems is to group them together. I'm not a fan of that. I was yeah. just going to ask yeah. you if not that's a, a good thing or a bad thing. I, I feel like my personal opinion. That to me is like a yeah. blow-up waiting to yeah, happen. That's a blow-up waiting to happen. You might as well put a sign on there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and and the, the tricky thing is that special ed is supposed to be a service, not a place. So the challenge becomes to have a dialogue with the educators, which good educators are thinking about that at the same time, but the, the overworked educator and the frustrated educator, the one who's 
just wants to get rid of the kid. They're thinking there's another room I can put them in. I don't have to deal with that. Uh, but there are lots of things that can be done that keep the kid in the regular classroom full time or that at least keep them in the regular classroom much of the time. And some of them just require extra effort. Some of them require extra skill. Some of them require resources that are expensive, like providing a one-to-one -one aid. Um, that's a whole different staff position. You right. Know, to, to keep a kid in a, in a classroom, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but the goal of these laws includes keeping, giving them an appropriate education and doing it in the least restrictive environment. And that's both a civil rights issue <clears throat> and it's good for the kid, it's good for society. Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, are better off. It's the point of the whole program. Yes. The point of the whole program is to promote the ability of kids to be independent, whether they have disabilities or they don't have disabilities. But certainly, given that kids with disabilities are more vulnerable, the more we can do to help them to function independently, the better. What part of the, what part of the law is it when kids are really struggling and they get placed out of the school into a therapeutic day school and it's paid for, um, you know, that the school is saying it's a lot of proof put before them that this is not working, this school, an extreme circumstance, and this child is put in a different school. What, what is that? What well, does that fall under? That, t that could theoretically happen under Section 504. Most people don't realize that. But typically, it happens under the special ed law, the Individuals oh. with Disabilities Education Act. And there's a very simple reason that that's how it plays out. And the reason is that if that service is needed under the, and done through the special ed law, the school districts get reimbursement from the state. If it's done under Section 504, Section 504, there's no reimbursement. So oh. that would come completely out of the school district's oh. own funds. Wow. So the, the idea is, and it's a very powerful idea, that you should always try to serve kids in the least restrictive environment that's appropriate to meet their needs. And, and I have to say, in my experience, there are cases where the school wants the kid in more restrictive setting and the parents are coming to us to say, we don't want them in that therapeutic school. We want to keep them in their mainstream as much mainstream as we can. As much as we can. <clears throat> and so we have that argument. And then there are times when the parents are coming to us and saying, my kids having a traumatic time at the public school. We got to get them into some specialized place. Uh, it could be they just don't have the skills at this public school. It could be that they don't trust the public school. It could be in some cases, sadly, that the kid's been beaten up and yeah, bullied, bullied by I was thinking kids. Yeah, a lot of bullying. Uh, even, even beaten up and bullied by staff. I was just going to uh, say that. It happens. It yeah. happens. It absolutely Yeah, that happens. experience. Uh, and so the parent, in, in some ways, it's the saddest case when the child's disability itself, their mental illness or their behavioral problem, isn't really so serious that they need such a high level of care and specialization that they have to be moved. But because it's not safe in that environment, because the staff is not willing to do or able to do what's needed, they get moved because the parents decide, well, we'd rather have them in a new environment where at least we can trust that they'll be okay than to have them in the environment where they continue to get bullied or the staff continues to set them up or whatever the problems are going on. So it gets very complicated. But the, the, the 
typical pattern is that you don't move a kid to the more restrictive setting until you've exhausted the less restrictive setting. So before you got to the stage of therapeutic day school, let alone to residential, and the audience can't see it, but I'm raising my hand yes. up as I go, uh, uh, you should have tried the kid in a resource room. And then is you this have written, tried the, what you're saying with this, is this written into law? Oh, yeah. So it's, yeah. it's absolutely the described. law and the court's mm -hmm. interpretation of the law. It's very clear cut. But, and this is where sometimes there are disputes with the school, let's say a kid has a severe anxiety disorder. They're not going to school. They just cannot set foot inside the public mm -hmm. school. Public school says, well, you know, we're sorry, but that's your problem, parent. And the parent says, well, I don't have the means to get them to school. I don't have any way to control them. It's an adolescent, let's say. Mm -hmm. and, or they're told to call the police. Or they're told to call the police. And, and sometimes the police are great about that. And sometimes, particularly after the second or third or fourth call, mm -hmm. Police are probably saying, yeah, this, you know, been there, done <laughs> school, that. School <laughs> refusal does That's not right. fall uh, under refusal. breaking laws. <laughs> right. uh, it, it actually can be, but that's, uh, in any event, the point that I'm, I'm getting to is if you can make a good clinical argument and you need doctors to back it up, that trying some of these less restrictive options isn't going to work, you can leap over some of the steps. And so even though the public schools often say, you haven't exhausted the less restrictive options, we're able to prove that the less restrictive options are just not viable. Or, and also not safe. I mean, if a kid's yeah. really getting yeah. uh, getting bullied and physically right. punched around, it's just not, you know, you don't say, let's wait right. and try that first. I mean, No, actually, often they do, and that's problematic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'll say. Sometimes there, bad things but happen. But there's the other, the other end of it also, um, which I have had a lot of parents <laughs> ask me about, is when the school is trying to push you out, push your child out into therapeutic schools mm -hmm. because they do not either have the resources or, you know, I can't comment well, on what they're... Well, I'll comment. Okay. <laughs> Excuses, but they I, try to push them right out yeah. the door. I mean, to, to be clear, I'm sympathetic. The public schools are overworked. The yes, teachers are agreed. overworked and mm -hmm. overwhelmed. So I, I get that. On the other hand, there's some kids where the teacher or the administration just decides, and you've given me permission to say, this kid's just a royal pain in the ass and we yes, want him out. Yeah, yes. And and so, yeah, it's going to cost us fifty dollars or $100,000, but that's not coming out of our paycheck. That's coming out right. of the taxpayer's mm -hmm. budget. And it's easier for us to just get the kid out. And and uh, and so that happens, sadly. Uh, and and the, the dilemma for parents is, Sometimes you can slow that process down and get some good services in place and everybody kind of comes around. But the, the flip side of that story is, I say when, when the school has put the scar scarlet initial on yeah. the, right. the mental kid health is initial, they're marked, mm -hmm. they, they do things like, uh, well, all right, you think your kid needs a one-to-one aid, fine. We're going to give you a one-to-one aid, and they park some big guy, you know, standing over their shoulder and and breathing down their neck, and the kid doesn't want a six-foot-five goon standing over them, and they go off, and you can almost predict it. Yeah, parents are stuck between a rock and a hard place. Absolutely, very tough position to be in. And again, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. There are wonderful schools, and and wonderful educators, and not so wonderful schools. We're trying very hard. This is difficult stuff. 
but uh, but there are a lot of kids who end up getting really shortchanged. I know it's sad. I know you're talking about behaviorals and stuff like that. Can you go into a little about like a behavioral plan or what is a safety plan? What what do those things sure. mean? When do parents ask for those? Absolutely. I mean, is this during crisis that? <laughs> Not necessarily. Well, the safety plan, yes. The behavioral plan, not necessarily, and they're different. So yes. first talk about the safety plan. What so is that? A safety plan can address a whole variety of different things. It can address the fact that the child uh, has a tendency to elope. It can address the fact that the child has uh, a medical condition that requires careful monitoring of their medication. It can address that they have uh, epilepsy and they have to be carefully monitored to make sure that they're uh, identified when they're having a seizure and someone's attending to that properly. Uh, it can address that they have um, some pretty extreme occasional behaviors and what to look for to recognize that this is something that's related to their illness, not something that's a, a malicious uh, kind of in, intentional or volitional act. And so here is what, and the big difference with the safety plan is the safety plan is predominantly focused on what are the adults need to do to keep the kids safe. It's not so much geared to how do we change the child's behavior? How do we help them to grow? Well, especially if it's something, uh, epilepsy or mental illness, you know, it's it's there. You have to deal with it. Or you can't just, change it. What you know, if a child's just getting bullied in general? Yeah. Well, I mean, and absolutely. And, and the, that's also, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I should have mentioned that in the context of types of safety plans. Uh, and I'm sure you both know, there's oftentimes a, a horrible tendency to blame the victim and to say, well, why aren't you coming to us and reporting it? Why aren't you walking away? Why aren't you uh, avoiding provoking it? Why, mm -hmm. you know, all of the different things that attribute to the victim some way that they cause the problem. And we frequently, the bullying cases are really tough. My, my it's heart heartbreaking. It's, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, and and there's, it's so hard to come up with a solution that doesn't penalize the victim. And, and unfortunately, bullies can be really, really awful. Yes. And they can even empower other kids. Mm -hmm. We have a, a case that we're working on at the moment where... There was a protective order issued against a particular kid. The kid recruited friends. Yeah. And and so now he's, in effect, got agents carrying out mm -hmm. the bullying okay. for him. And sometimes you don't have the parents that are involved saying, you know, you got to right. stop this. Absolutely. Parents can be Absolutely. right in there in yeah. a way and so the, not So the safety the plan requires what do we have to do to keep the kids safe, but trying to do it in a way that minimizes the disruption or the label, the label, the penalty, all of those things. The behavioral plan is different. <clears throat> the behavioral plan has as a premise that behavior happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. And so the first step is that we've got to figure out why the behavior is happening. And there's actually 50, maybe 75 years of Solid, well-understood <laughs> science yes. backing that up. That behavior happens for a reason. And that if you do a good job of analyzing, studying the student in the environment and seeing what the things are that trigger them, not always, if a child is having 
hallucinations. You may not know that. Right, <laughs> right, know? right. But, but most of the time, mm -hmm. you can figure out that the kid doesn't like to be touched or that the kid starts to act up, funny coincidence, every time that there's a reading assignment. Mm -hmm. Or the kid acts up every time that the buzzer goes off because they have an aversion to noise. Or I, I had a, a wonderful client a number of years ago. This child actually had Down syndrome but he was identified by the school as having a behavior disorder. And the father was an engineer. And he did something very clever. He didn't have any training in behavioral analysis, but he asked for the school to give him all of the behavior reports. And he hmm. started to graph the behavior reports. And he figured out, just by tracking at what times of the day the behavior was happening, there were two situations where the behavior was happening. One was in the hallways, which were completely unstructured and chaotic. Mm -hmm. And the other was in the foreign language class, where the kid had no idea <laughs> what was going on because he couldn't speak a foreign language. I can understand and that. In fact, his behavior was fine in other, the other, other classes. Than that. Hmm. He didn't have an across-the-board behavior disorder. He had a situational problem, and the behavioral analysis identified it. it happened to be the dad who did it. Wow. But the answer wasn't that he needed to be a special school or a special class or being punished. The answer was he needed some support in the hallway. Mm -hmm. And by God, he needed to get out of the Spanish class, you know, and yeah. then be given a waiver for that. Um, and so the, the idea is what are the things that we can modify environmentally for the kid that, that may remove an adverse stimulus at the front end? And then also, and for kids with mental health issues, frequently... They need to be taught skills. Yeah. How do you socialize? How do you respond? How do you respond? How do you deal with authority? Um, what, what do you do when you're frustrated? Uh, how do you manage your anxiety or your anger? And, and that's not something you punish away. That's something you teach. Right. And, and like a CBT, mm -hmm. which is cognitive behavioral yeah. therapy. Yeah, absolutely. To yeah. retrain. Right. Who and does which the, takes time and patience. Who but. does the data analysis for the behavioral plans? Well, everything I'm saying sounds great and pretty yeah. easy, um, <laughs> but there's a real problem with it being done adequately and well by people who know what they're doing. You're probably aware, you probably had guests already, uh, behavioral analysis is like a booming yes. field at the moment. Uh, many public schools now have people who are either trained formally as uh, board-certified behavior analysts or are people who may not have the official BCBA credential, but they've gotten some training in the field. But as with some other things, and it, sadly, it's, it's tremendously important that it be done right because it makes a big difference whether it's done right or not. Some schools do a great job with it, and some schools paper it over, and they say, oh, you know, there's no pattern to the kid's behavior, so there's no way we can... Yeah, they uh, just don't have the time and don't have or the haven't time. taken the time. Haven't, that's exactly The other thing is the what you're saying, um, when that's like the father of the year, that engineer that tracked the behavior. Right. That's really quite a story. Mm -hmm. But um, but for parents to really advocate advocate for these kids, the core of knowing who they are and and, and looking at what the behaviors are at home, too. I mean, Absolutely. it definitely trickles over to what happens during the day. Sure. So um, it's being listened to as a parent. And things that work and don't work when you were, you know, discussing mm -hmm. behavioral intervention plans with my son when he was younger, and he's going to be 29. Um, but we put some things that kind of were in left field, like, 
he just needed to go for a walk. So right. they would take him for a walk around the school. He needed to... And this was part of his 504 or IEP? IEP. IEP. Um, listening yeah. to music. Listening to right. music calmed him. And I'll never forget sitting in the meeting and they said, well, how are we going to tell all the other kids it's okay that your son has headphones on right. and they can't? I said, well, why don't we educate them about mental health and then they won't even ask the question. Good for you. Good for you. And, and not only that, but they knew he was struggling. Yes. Yeah. That was no surprise. No. <laughs> so. And obviously it would be easier for them. You know, it makes sure. the it made things so go. much easier the for them. Things, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, these things are not rocket science, actually. Right. When, when someone, when parents come to you and they're applying for some of these things and get denied, how many times can you go back? An infinite amount of times to keep going and going, uh, reproving and trying well, to get these... I would say that that's really driven more by energy and resources than it is by any legal barrier. Uh, there is a point where if you make too many requests, you're kind of branded as a crank and, mm -hmm. and, and a crazy, and, and so they stop taking you seriously. But there's, as long as you make a reasonable request and you have some new data to support whatever the request, Good keep point. making the same re request over and over again, they're going to throw you out of court. But if you have new information and the school has an obligation to consider the new information and they blow you off, you'll have it yeah, actually not stronger. Mm -hmm. Right. That's, that's a, a great point. I never mm -hmm. thought about that or thought about mm -hmm. it like that to bring in new, new yeah, evidence, it's, basically. Yeah. It's great advice. And, you know, it's, it's very sad. There are lots of ways in our society where we've gotten more legalistic and people have to consult a lawyer. It's actually, in many respects, appalling that there's a whole small group of us both representing parents in schools, who are lawyers having to deal with what happens at school. But the reality is, any time you're talking about how do you interpret a law, you're talking both about the judgment about what do the words of the law mean, and then how do you prove it. Mm -hmm. Basic issue of lawyers is what's the evidence? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we help parents do, parents may have great instincts about what's happening. They may have the right idea about what their child should need, but they can't prove it. And so part of the role of the lawyer is both to look at the school records, because oftentimes there's a whole lot of evidence in what the school already has that they're just either not recognizing or not sharing or acknowledging. And sometimes we need them to go see a psychiatrist or a neuropsychologist or a social worker. And uh, what I tell parents that's actually... a uh, they're always very appreciative. I, I don't want to say that. Mostly appreciative. <laughs> but I say to them, your kid needs therapy. Mm -hmm. And there are two reasons your kid needs therapy. You can choose either one or both. But one is they'll probably benefit from it, and the other is you need evidence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. And so whether or not your both kid benefits from it. You're right on both those counts. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know. that's right. And, and you're, you're the objective, you know, the knowledgeable expert that has the objective set of eyes on this. Parents are so worried and uh, worked up thinking they're, you know, they're, they're worried about their kids. They're not getting enough from the schools, you know, and going to an expert like yourself is is just saying, you know, laying the cards out on the table, the plan of action, which well, would definitely put someone on a track. You know, I, I try very hard when people come to see me to n not just say, 
here's what I'm going to do for you. Instead, I view it as an opportunity for them to learn, and I want them to get value from our discussion, whether we end up taking the case or not. I want Good them for to you. learn what are the implications of your child having this disability. I'm not a clinician, but I know a lot about clinical stuff I'm because sure I've been do doing it a long time. So are there professionals that you're not involved with that your kid mm -hmm. would benefit from either diagnostically or from a treatment standpoint? Are there strategies that you could be using, that the school could be using, the school should be using, that are not being used? Um, are there different programs that might be appropriate? And then the other part of it is I can describe nirvana, but I also have to provide a reality check if here's what is needed to get it. Right. And the, the number of different uh, struggles you're going to have along the way to get there and the, the risks and the costs and all of that, it's, it's a lot. So parents have an uphill battle. Did you ever think going into law that you would end up being kind of like a clinician? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, this is, that's a very funny question. And as a matter of fact, um, this is a, a revealing little personal point, but my parents were both therapists. Oh. <laughs> so it's not entirely yeah. an accident. Oh, how interesting. And uh, in fact... Uh, I think I was kind of groomed to be a lawyer from a very early <laughs> age, but indirectly groomed to be a lawyer who would be involved with mental health issues. And uh, and I swore to them when I was a kid, I'm not going to be <laughs> a like, therapist. Not going to be like <laughs> I'm you. Not going to be like you. But is that I was going to ask you how you decided to have this area of law career wise. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, and and it's. I, interesting. I think you might have answered it, but go ahead. <laughs> I, I kind of did, though. Um, so I haven't said this. I have two sons, one of whom has multiple disabilities. But they were born after I became a special ed lawyer. Oh. Mm. So many people assume that because they know I have a son with disabilities, that that's the reason I got into it. Uh, in fact, I, I think you're a North Shore person. You're a city mm -hmm. person. But yes. I went to Evanston High School. Oh. And not only did I have parents as therapists, but... But Evanston High School back then, as it I think still is today, was economically stratified, it was racially stratified, it was segregated in a lot of ways. It was proclaimed in my graduating year, U.S. News and World Report has this national study they do of, of uh, best schools. Evanston was the number one best public high school according wow. to U.S. News and World Report wow. when I was a senior. And yet, the classes I were in were was in were segregated and you couldn't go into the bathrooms and, oh and uh, there were gang fights in the hallways and when you, you went outside and, and, and it was clear that, that the black kids were getting an inferior education compared to what the white kids were getting. So I went to law school, already kind of geared to civil rights, but I went to law school intent on school reform, but thinking I'd probably be focusing on race. And... I was just young enough that I missed the first kind of wave of civil rights race-related discrimination, but I lucked into a job when I was, uh, after my first year of law school, I went to work for uh, the Chicago Legal Assistance Foundation oh, Disability uh -huh. Rights Project. Yeah. And disability rights was all brand new. Yeah. The race stuff yeah. was 10 to 20 years old, mm -hmm. but the disability rights stuff was brand new. And they actually said to me, in words 
essentially these words. We've got a file cabinet over there. A whole bunch of parents have sent files in about their kids, and we don't know what to do. This is oh, new law, gosh. and, and uh, I was the young kid on the block, so go look at some of these files and see if you can figure out what to do. And, uh, and so I started to dig into it, and it happened that many of the kids were people of color who also had disabilities, so I picked up the mm, race element, and wow. there it was. So I, I never looked back. What wow. a great career. Yeah, I mean... We're lucky to have you. I mean, oh, it's great as a guest, but also all of these parents, all of your your knowledge getting out there. It really is well, yeah. so I'm lucky needed. To, lucky to be there. I love to do what I do. I feel passionately. You about can it. tell that you're passionate. That's for sure. Which is a gift, an extra gift on Thanks. top of the whole thing. Good. Yes. Well, we can't thank you enough. That was a lot of information we just got from Attorney Matt Cohen. I'm so excited that he's going to stick around. And we are going to do a part two. There's more to come, so keep listening and wait for us to drop again. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at mail.com. That's mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast um, leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.